The opening pages in the Bible describe paradise. The world was a place that was marked by holiness, peace, joy. Adam and Eve fully enjoyed one another. There was no conflict. There was no brokenness. And they had jobs to do. Both Adam and Eve were working together in the Garden of Eden to keep it. But didn't, it didn't feel like work. It didn't feel tedious or it wasn't drudgery. They were enjoying each other and the work that God gave them to do. Their, their souls were, were satisfied with, with the gifts that God had given to them in the garden. They were fulfilling their purpose of reflecting the glory of God as his image bearers. And they were living in the presence of God. Genesis describes how in the cool of the evening, God would visit Adam and Eve to just be near them. So God was not so far remote and removed. He was right there, near. And they were enjoying his presence. You know what that is? This is a picture of heaven. This is what you see. It was literally heaven un until it wasn't. Because of human rebellion, this rebelling against the loving rule of God has now plunged our world into sin, into corruption. And so now that we have lost paradise... We live in a world that is marked by evil, that's marked by anxiety, that's marked by brokenness, and ultimately with death. And in our fallen, natural human condition, now we fail to fully reflect the glory of God as his image bearers. We are no longer living in paradise where God is right here near us, we are left to ourselves very far from the presence of God, and our souls cannot find any true or lasting peace or joy in this corrupted world. And the book of Ecclesiastes describes the harsh but also true reality of what life, as the author Solomon says, life under the sun Life on this planet, in its broken condition, he is describing what it's like with vivid detail for 12 chapters. So as we continue in this series, today we've been looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we've been asking the question, is it all meaningless? The message of Ecclesiastes is pointing to the truth that life ultimately is meaningless without Jesus. Without him being the center, the focal point of why you exist, looking for any source of meaning under the sun will leave you empty. And so the message of this powerful book is that life is meaningless without Jesus. So what you're seeing in Ecclesiastes is just pointing to the coming Messiah. So with no sugarcoating in this book, King Solomon is giving a very 
honest picture of what life is like whenever God is not the center of your thoughts, your desires, your words, and of your actions. And so because we live under the sun in this, in this place with who we are and our brokenness, there's a lot of pain. I'm sure if I, if I ask for a show of hands, who's experiencing pain today, I would see quite a few hands go up, if not all of them, in one way, whether it's emotional, physical, in some capacity. We all experience pain. But since God originally created us to live a pain-free, beautiful, perfect existence in the Garden of Eden where his presence was near, he made us for that. He made us to know him, to enjoy him, to serve him, but in a state of perfection and integrity. Because he made us for heaven, to be close to him, our hearts yearn for the Garden of Eden. We want it. Every one of us desires to go back. Whether we realize it or not, whether you're intentional with it or not, whether you're a believer in Jesus or whether you're here today just checking this thing called faith out, wherever you are on your journey, the truth is that any, every one of us is still yearning to return into the Garden of Eden which that is the main idea, so the primary truth from Ecclesiastes 2 that we'll read here in just a moment is the human soul longs to return to the Garden of Eden. Your soul, my soul yearns, it longs to return to the Garden of Eden. So every human being is chasing after Eden. Kind of like a a soft voice that we hear, but it's deep inside of us. And his voice is calling us to come home. A voice that you first heard maybe many years ago. Maybe you don't know when for the first time or, or, or where. Maybe it feels like it was just a dream, but it's not. It's real. And that voice that is calling you home is the voice of the living God. It is the spirit who is calling us to come home, to come, to rest in him, to know him. But the reality is that on this side of heaven, we cannot have heaven. On this existence, we're not going to have Eden but what we can have is joy with the presence of God. We have a taste of it through his spirit who indwells us in even community. We can experience the joy of God even in this broken existence under the sun outside of Eden. But the problem is that we forget. We get so consumed by the affairs of life. The anxieties, the, the reality of life under the sun can be so challenging at times and so consuming that we forget that we're not in heaven because we want it so bad and we want here to feel like heaven with no problems and, and we want everything to just be perfect and it's not. So we want it to be and we forget that this is not going to be Eden. 
but we can still experience the joy of our salvation in, in the presence of God in a very real way. And so we're going to be asking two questions from Ecclesiastes 2. So two key questions. Number one, the first question we're asking is, how do we chase after Eden? How do we do that? Because we're all doing it. And in our own way, maybe the way I do it or the way you do it is distinct in what we're looking for. But in, and when it comes down to it, we're not different. We're human. We have the same longings and desires. And so we're all going to be chasing after it. And there's three ways from Ecclesiastes 2 where it describes how Every one of us is chasing after Eden. This is important for us to know. We need to be aware of what's going on inside of us so that we can then identify it and then pour our hearts out to God and have him change us. So the first way that all of us tend to chase after Eden is through pleasure. We all do this. This is part of the human condition. We chase after Eden by pursuing pleasure. You see in Ecclesiastes 2 verses 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them, all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had many great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delights of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He says it's meaningless. The Spirit of God inspired King Solomon to write this book. And in an effort to find meaning in life, he continually was failing to find meaning. And so he turns to pleasure. He said, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he was seeking pleasure. He says, but behold, this was vanity. And so inside of all of us, I believe that we all tend to think that what will ultimately satisfy is having more of what we already have. And so for most of us in the room, the church with a lot of young families, 
there probably was a time when, when most of us were praying, we were begging God that he would give us a spouse. God, give me a wife, give me a husband. We said, and then we said, God, give me children. And we said, God, give me a job. I, ju- I just need a better job. Or I just need a little bit better salary. And we prayed these things. Isn't it funny how most of us already got all of those things? Most of us are married with kids. If you're here, you have a job, at least most of us. And yet, we're still not satisfied. Just like a child two days after Christmas who's already bored with all of his new stuff. We, we get what we ask for, and then we realize that we're still coming up empty. And we struggle to believe King Solomon here. We struggle when he says, I have had it all, I have done it all, and it was all meaningless. And we think to ourselves, really? If I had it all, it would not be meaningless We look at our celebrities, so modern day people that have the money, the wealth, the prestige, and we think to ourselves, well, yeah, they're all a wreck, but if I had that kind of money, I wouldn't be like them. I would know how to enjoy it. I I would invest my money wisely, and I would would give it away, and and I wouldn't let it get to my head. I would be be very wise with the fortune that the celebrities in Hollywood have. Ecclesiastes is very honestly calling us to be honest with ourselves. The answer is no, you wouldn't. You would be as messed up as they are. It is God's gift to you that you are not a celebrity. I've had it all. It's all meaningless. Seeking pleasure does not satisfy you see it in verse 2. He says he sought laughter. He calls it madness. He says, what use is laughter? Laughter is a gift. Laughter is a blessing from God. Adopting these two little boys in our home this last year has brought so much more laughter into our home. And laughter is a, is a gift. Laughter, though, can momentarily maybe distract us from real pain. But laughter cannot overcome your pain. Laughter is madness, he calls it, when we want to turn to it as a solution for life's problems. And so Solomon walks out of the comedy club, and he goes to the bar to cope with life. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. So he looked to laughter, experiences that would make him laugh and enjoy, and it wasn't working, so then he goes, he says, okay, so I'm going to go to the bar. And he drinks. Now, the Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol. And this is controversial. Not so much here, but in the U.S. it really is. But if we're really honest, the Bible does not condemn drinking alcohol. It does condemn drunkenness. And so abusing alcohol is definitely a problem. That is a sin that is clearly described in the Bible. And yet, Drinking alcohol in the Bible, drinking wine, is usually part of celebration. So this is, this is the reality that we have in the Bible, that alcohol is seen as, as something that is used wine for celebration. It's a joyous thing. 
But you see here, Solomon turned to alcohol, he turned to wine, and it wasn't satisfying him. He was trying to fill a hole inside with alcohol, and it just wasn't working, which is what leads to abusing alcohol is because people turn to it to escape from their life's problems. And that's not going to be the solution. The text doesn't say if Solomon was a connoisseur of fine wine or if he was having drinking parties that were wild. It doesn't say. He probably did both what you see in Solomon's life, I would imagine. But what we do see in this text that's clear is the wine did not satisfy. Verses 4 through 6 describes here how Solomon says he made great works. He says he built houses, planted vineyards. He says he made gardens and, and parks, and he planted them. He says, with fruit trees, and I made myself pools from which to water forests of growing trees. So he was greenifying Jerusalem, putting gardens and, and these amazing structures and trees. And he, was, he, was, he turned to the best of architecture and agriculture and engineering. He thought, well, my partying days weren't really satisfying. Let's turn to something that's more substantive, like investing in my community and being a philanthropist. It didn't satisfy either. And any game that you can create in video game Minecraft pales in comparison to what he created. For these pools I'm describing here for irrigation are still there. To this day, 3,000 years later, you can still see these pools. Amazing. This is remarkable. Ecclesiastes 2 says that, 2, 5, verse 5, he says that he planted all kinds of fruit trees. Now, that phrase may sound familiar to you because that phrase is used three times in Genesis 1 and 2, where it says that there were all kinds of fruit trees in the Garden of Eden. And so Solomon here is intentionally quoting Genesis 1 and 2. What you're seeing here is Solomon is trying to recreate the Garden of Eden. He wants to go back into paradise. And we chase after Eden, but we can't get there. His world is fallen. There is no Eden here on earth. Verses 7 through 8 describe his wealth. He turned to accumulating more wealth. This is yet herds and flocks more than anyone before him in Jerusalem. It says in 2 Chronicles 9.27 that in Solomon's reign, he was so filthy rich that silver to him was like a common stone. It was, it was nothing. He was so wealthy. Now, because of when he lived 3,000 years ago, there were no iPods or CD players, so he couldn't just play music in his headphones. But if he felt like listening to music, it says he had his own band. I mean, he had bands of women, men and women, which is not common in that era. So this is groundbreaking where he was having them sing together. And so what you see is he owned them. So maybe he, he, he didn't have the MP3 player, but he had the live band. So it's like imagine having the money where you own Taylor Swift and you own One Direction and you own Justin Bieber or Adele. Oh, you want some music? You say, hey, Adele, come sing for me. And then, hello. 
That was Solomon. He, he owned everything. People from all over the planet were coming to hear him, to see his wisdom, to see what he built. He had it all. He wasn't satisfied. So he turned to women. He says that he had concubines. Now, 1 Kings 11 says that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, so 1,000 women. Now, a concubine was not a wife. She was an object. She could never leave the palace. She could never get married and have a real life. She could never have children. She was just to live in the palace, and she existed as an object to satisfy the king, who would never know her name, who would never care about who she was. She was just a body to use at his disposal. And when you have a thousand women, the odds of him knowing who they were or caring anything about them was just not in the equation. Objects. And we can look down on Solomon for having a thousand women, but the reality is that people today that are on endless search for sexual pleasure, as Solomon was, have more than a thousand women in their internet search history. Yeah, they're digital, but they have thousands of, of digital lovers. And so, lest we be too hard on Solomon, our world today is just as guilty. And it's never enough. And it's not just the images, it's also the romance novels that's just as evil. Just as cancer to our souls. And it's a looking for the next the newest erotic experience to be satisfied, but the high doesn't last. So you need more. Verse 10, he says, Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. He desired it, he took it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. And in verse 11, he says, There was nothing to be gained under the sun. So he played out every single fantasy in real life. He had success, money, clothes, house. He didn't have a car, but the chariots. Hit the best of everything. He had the women, the approval of everyone around him. Meaningless. He says it's all vanity. And there are billions of people today on this, on this earth who think to themselves, if only I could get the American dream. They think, if only I could have the American dream, then it'd be different. Then I'd be happy. No, you won't. No, you won't. It's striving after the wind. It will not satisfy. Ever since Adam and Eve first believed that they needed just one more tree, just one more fruit for the lives to be complete, ever since then, the human soul has been seeking just one more pleasure to be complete. And our world tells us that we should not suppress 
or deny ourselves. We're told to seek pleasure, to be happy, no matter what it has to do with your gender identity, your sexual orientation, your pleasures, your dreams, whatever it is, just seek to be happy. Do not deny yourself. That's very bad for you psychologically to deny yourself. And so if it feels good, go do it. Seek pleasure. Be happy. This is the message of our world. Now let's just be clear. Pleasure is not intrinsically evil. It's not. But because of the fall, some of the pleasures that we pursue actually are evil. But a lot of other pleasures that we would pursue aren't evil. They're good things. They're gifts from God, but they don't satisfy your soul. So indulging in the pleasures under the sun leads to brokenness. Author D.A. Carson says it well. He says, pleasure is a good thing that if turned into a God thing becomes an enslaving thing. So, if seeking pleasure in this world didn't satisfy, Tom thought, well, maybe living the right kind of life will be the solution to his emptiness. So he chased after Eden through pleasure. Number two, we chase Eden through wisdom. And that's what he did. He was chasing after Eden to find ultimate satisfaction in wisdom. Verses 12 through 17. So I turn to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen also to me. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will be long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all this vanity and striving after wind. He says, pleasures weren't enough. He was still empty. So and then he says, he, I turned to consider wisdom. And when he has this phrase, for what man can do comes after the king, what he, basically what that means is, don't try to outdo me because you can't. Solomon literally did it all, and he came up empty. The wisest person to ever live in the end found that even wisdom was meaningless. He admits that wisdom is better than being foolish. You make better choices. He agrees, but even the value of wisdom is not eternal. It doesn't last. The wise and the fool both Suffer and both die. So he says, well, what's the point? He says, like, why bother working hard to try to be wise when the foolish seem to have more fun anyway and we're all going to die? So why bother trying to be wise? So he's saying death 
in his thinking here and living the right kind of life just felt meaningless. And so seeking pleasures and seeking to know more, to learn more, to have human-based wisdom just led to more despair. So he looks elsewhere. He looks somewhere else. It wasn't in pleasures. It wasn't in wisdom. Kissing at Eden, number three, he looks for work. He says, in my toil. And so in his work, he's trying to find satisfaction, verses 18 to 23. I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also was vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart over to despair. Over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed to someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. He says, what's the point of even working hard? In the end, you may have to leave your money to someone after, after you're dead, and they may not use it wisely. And so he's like lamenting this reality of your hard work is not satisfying. So, but the work that we do to a degree is satisfying. So if you're a chef, and you see someone enjoying the plates that you created, that's satisfying. If you're an engineer and the power plant finally goes live and is producing energy, there's this sense of accomplishment. If you're a military commander and your troops perform well, well, there's some satisfaction there. Or if you're a teacher and you see your students really learning and improving, that, that brings you a sense of joy. It does. It is satisfying. But Solomon is lamenting that ultimately in the final analysis, it doesn't satisfy. He says, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Like, he, he, it's not satisfying to him. It's tedious. The affirmation that we receive from work can feel great. But that affirmation is fleeting. It's like a nomad, right? someone who is just wandering, who goes somewhere, and as soon as they arrive, they're itching, they're restless to leave and go somewhere else. And that's what it's like with, with our work affirmation. Like, it comes, and then very quickly, it leaves. And we kill ourselves at work trying to get ahead, get promotions, more money. And in the end, in this environment especially, our work is so not guaranteed. And yet we, we worship it and make it an idol to fill us. And in the end, our work, if we're honest, does not fully satisfy. So pleasure, wisdom, work, all of them were in the garden. They existed, but in perfection, we God designed now we've lost that paradise, and without Jesus, these realities that are good, pleasure, wisdom, work are good gifts. Without Christ and this existence, they're meaningless. Second key question as we wrap up, and our time has expired. Key question two, how can you enjoy life 
outside of Eden. So how can we enjoy life outside of Eden, right here under the sun? The answer is contentment in Jesus. That's how. Contentment in Jesus is the only way. Ecclesiastes shows us the foolishness, brokenness, senselessness of life without God. But remember that the point here is that our frustrations and disappointment is designed to drive us to Jesus, the Messiah. So he allows this emptiness because he wants to fill it and only he can. Last paragraph. Verse 24, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. There's a lot here, but just as you wrap up and just some closing thoughts. Something here is revealing that true joy, he says, comes from verse 25. Apart from God, who can eat or have enjoyment? So apart from God, there is no enjoyment. There is no true joy. Now, I know what you're thinking. At least some of you already know this. You're thinking, man, this sermon kind of makes God sound like this cosmic killjoy. And we, and, we, and we think it's incorrect, but it's common that when it comes to happiness, we think, well, there's happiness by addition. This is Solomon. He added money, added stuff, added a lot of women, added, added, added to be happy. And, of course, you know, that, that doesn't work. So it's clear. So we think happiness by addition doesn't work. So you think, oh, so happiness comes by subtraction. So if we, if we just subtract anything that feels good, subtract anything that's enjoyable, then you're going to be happy. And so we think if it feels good, it's probably sin. So God probably doesn't want you to do that. And so if it feels good, don't do it because God doesn't want you to have any fun or enjoy anything. That's not true. That's not in the Bible. That's not true at all. Laughter, sex with your wife or husband, gardening, work, these are not evil things. These are good things. These are gifts from God. And when we use my how he intended, it leads to joy. The problem is that we're broken. So God wants us to enjoy the gifts that he gives us. See, in Christ, he has redeemed us that we can chase after God's design for our lives. And that includes using the gifts he's given to us and to enjoy them right here on earth. Again, the key is contentment in Jesus. Jesus stood under the sun just like us. He stood here. He endured the wrath of God. He suffered and died in our place. He's resurrected and he offers us forgiveness if we will trust him. If you read John 16.33, it sounds a lot like King Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Jesus says, in this world you will have tribulation. That's, that's Ecclesiastes. That's what Jesus is saying. He sounds just like Solomon. In this world you will have tribulation. But someone greater than Solomon has come. And Jesus declares what Solomon could never say. 
Jesus says, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The son of David, Solomon, died and rotted. The true son of David, Jesus, died, was resurrected, is alive today, and offers us true hope because he overcame the grave. And we can have joy right here, right now, in the middle of this out-of-Eden experience. As we close, I keep saying that, I apologize, but I just want to share one quick story. The prodigal son, Luke 15. He left the father's love, and he goes to party, right? And we think, oh, he came to his senses. He quit partying, and he came back to the father. And so he left his partying days behind him, and then he had joy. Is that how the story ends in Luke 15? No. The story ends with the party. He didn't leave his partying days behind him. He came back. Luke 15 ends with a party, with music and dancing. You could hear it down the street. It was this big party. So what's the difference? The difference is that when he was partying, apart from the father, he was miserable and it was evil. And yet when he came back and he was satisfied in the father's love, then he could party. And it was good and pure and holy and satisfying. So God wants you to party. He wants you to enjoy life including enjoying the gifts that he gives to you, where you can enjoy your marriage, your children, your possessions, laughter, your work, can all be enjoyable if and only if and only when we are truly satisfied in Christ. When our souls are filled, it allows us to enjoy the gifts without making them idols that will enslave us. Our hearts long for Eden. And the reason is we long for the presence of God. And we have it now. Eden awaits us. We'll be in heaven one day. Until that day comes, we experience his presence. We live for him in community. That true joy. Let us draw near to him together. Will you pray with me? Lord, this morning we adore you. We praise you. We thank you that our hearts so yearn to be close to you. We yearn to be in a state of perfection where we have no more sin, but we can just fully see you as you are and enjoy your presence and reflect your glory for eternity. And you have given us a taste of that right here, right now. And so we thank you for the gift of our salvation, of your spirit, and even of having this church. We can follow you together. Make us a healthy church that displays your character to Abu Dhabi, for we have a city to reach for you. Use us, Father. Satisfy us. We pray it for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen.